Today's podcast episode is sponsored by the Reconnective Healing Global Community. I don't know if you guys remember, but back in 2020, we released an episode with Dr. Eric Pearl and Jillian Fleer about reconnective healing. He was a chiropractor who was working in his practice in Los Angeles, and his patients started to report that they were having these healings just with his hands being near them without him actually touching them. So he went on to research and try to find out what this universal wisdom was behind what was happening, and he developed the reconnective healing process. Their website is thereconnection.com, and they are offering an online level one class called The Portal to awaken your own healing ability and to learn how to do this. There's over eight hours of interactive content where you will learn to interact with energy, light, and information to experience lasting knowingness, peace, and love without limitations. They gave us a coupon code to give to all of our listeners. It is PATH2PORTAL. We're going to put that in the show notes, and that's 25% off of the Portal Online Level 1 course. I hope you guys enjoy. Let me know if you take it. Send me an email. Would love to know how the course works for you. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. We are going to be talking about transformation through turmoil. And you might even be what my guest is going to call a shifter. You're going to learn about what it means to be a shifter. And I think most people at some point in their life are going to go through some sort of transformation and turmoil, whether it be war, incarceration, bereavement, death, depression, stress, suicide, addiction. So my guest today is Stephen Taylor, and he is the author of his newest book. He's written many, Extraordinary Awakenings. And he has a bunch of other best-selling books that you'll be able to find on his website. We'll put his website in the show notes. But he's a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and the chair of the Transpersonal Psychology section of the British Psychological Society. Steve's articles and essays have been published in over 100 academic journals, magazines, and newspapers, and he blogs for Scientific American and Psychology Today. His website is stephenmtaylor.com. Stephen, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yes. I also know, and I, I think I'm going to want to have you come on to the show again, because there's another book that I, your publicist had given me the PDF for The Leap, Psychology of Spiritual Awakenings. So that's another one that I might have you back on, and we'll talk more about that. But I'm really, really enjoyed Extraordinary Awakenings and reading this book. And I have always wondered about the concept of suffering of human beings and why you know, some people can go through, like you talk about, these uh, transformations and really appear to be different people. 
So this book was really extraordinary, <laughs> as you have in the title. And uh, before we get to my three pages of questions here, maybe you could just give our listeners a little bit of your background and really what what brought you to be fascinated about psychology and spirituality and combining the two together. It came from my own experiences. Um, probably when I was a teenager, I started to experience what I know, now know to be higher states of consciousness or spiritual experiences. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't understand them. I thought it was a bit crazy. You know, I thought there was maybe something wrong with me because uh, I'd have these moments when my surroundings would suddenly sort of come to life and trees would seem like they were sentient beings and the clouds would look as though they were sort of somehow alive. Everything looked alive and I felt connected to everything. And yeah, I, d I didn't understand the experiences at the time, but, but a few years later, I started to read books about mystical experiences or spiritual experiences. And I thought, ah, this is the, you know, this is the kind of experience I've been having. So I'm not crazy after all, you know, or maybe I'm crazy, but lots of other people are crazy too. So that's, that's okay. But so that I became a psychologist, actually it was quite, it was quite a long time afterwards because I was, um, I did other things. I was a musician for a quite, quite a long time, but years later, probably when I was in my early thirties. I decided to go back to university to train to be a psychologist because I wanted to understand these experiences. I wanted to understand my own spiritual experiences and find out how common they were and, you know, what, what situations brought them on. And that's why I, I entered the field of transpersonal psychology, which is really spiritual psychology, because I wanted to study these experiences. Yeah. Wonderful. So I want to get right to some of my questions. You talk, since you were talking about your experiences when you were younger. In your book, you talk about the difference between having an awakening experience and becoming awakened. So I thought that might actually be a good place to start, you know, because some of what we're going to go through with transformation through turmoil, as you coined it, the triple T's or TTT, yeah. um, you know, I just thought it would, it was really great the way that you explained it, you know, how, because I've had many awakening experiences Sometimes I feel like I am becoming awakened and then I like go back to real life. So I don't think I'm totally there yet, but I mm. really love the description of really being able to describe the differences between that. And I think a lot of our listeners uh, come to our podcast because they've had a lot of awakening experiences. So can you tell us the difference between those two? Awakening experiences are temporary. So they may, they may last for just a few seconds or sometimes a few minutes, sometimes a few hours, if you're lucky, but they are, you know, a, a very brief experience of a, an altered state, a higher state of consciousness in which our surroundings become more intensely real. They seem illuminated with some kind of force or energy and we feel connected to our surroundings. Everything seems interconnected. Everything seems very real and very interconnected. We feel kind of uplifted. We feel that there is a sense of harmony around us, life seems to be more meaningful. So it's a real kind of revelation or illumination of, of this kind of more expansive, more intense, more beautiful reality. But unfortunately, you know, the, those experiences do tend to be temporary. So, you know, after a certain amount of time, you return to your, what, you know, what you call real life, you know, the or, an ordinary state of consciousness, which seems less real than, than the state we've been in. You know, it seems like a, a kind of less real reality. You know, that we have, a, we have a very, a very strong feeling that we've, we've glimpsed a more real reality. And this normal reality is a kind of, you know, a narrow, limited kind of reality. But after the experiences, people, 
people do feel a new sense of optimism because they feel that there is some meaning in life. They've glimpsed this higher truth. So it gives them, it inspires them and they get interested in spirituality. They start to, maybe they start to follow some kind of spiritual path or start, or start to read spiritual books. So they do, you know, they do leave, you know, they do leave some long-term effects, even though they're temporary. But wakefulness is when awakening, well, when that kind of experience becomes an ongoing state, it becomes a person's normal state. And surprisingly, you know, that is, it's not uncommon. I mean, obviously, awakening experiences are quite common. Research should suggest that about half of the population have had one at least once in their lives. About a third of people have them more than once or regularly. But to live in that state in an ongoing permanent way is obviously more rare. But even then, it's not completely uncommon. I mean, that, that was um, one of the things I found in my research, that some people would have an awakening experience, but it wouldn't fade away. It would become established as an ongoing experience. You know, maybe not at the same intensity. The intensity would diminish slightly, but it would still become you know, a new state of being for them. And that's what I call wakefulness. Yeah. And so with all the research that you've done, right, you do all this research of these different states, where do you think you are? Are you, are you, are you living in that real awakened, wow. permanent place? Wow. People don't normally ask me that. <laughs> and I'm also an Englishman, so I'm, I'm very modest, but I, I would say that, you know, there, there are different intensities of wakefulness. You know, I think a low level of wakefulness isn't so uncommon. It's probably much more uncommon to live in a very high state of wakefulness. So I think that I'm, I'm probably established at one of the lower levels of wakefulness. You know, I think it is an ongoing state for me, but you know, sometimes it fades into the background. Sometimes, you know, I get stressed out by, by life and sometimes I get a little bit miserable, but but it's always there kind of in the background, you know, and it always comes back. I always, I always know that it's there. If I do sort of fall into a kind of egoic state, I know it's only temporary. It's not my real state of being. True. Yeah. All right. So you and I, we might be living in the same plane of awakening. <laughs> you know, when, when I had that awake, I've had quite a few awakening experiences. And when you talk about wakefulness, when I was in those states, there was no fear. It was almost as if I really had this great understanding of the way that life worked and could really see from a bird's eye view that the attachments here, the struggles here, like none of it is really meant for us to suffer. But it's really, you know, this energy of, of the great consciousness is really helping us to evolve through what we perceive, you know, in like this three-dimensional reality of suffering, but it's really meant for our evolution of consciousness. So, you know, in those states, and, you know, I walked away from this one meditation training that was the most impactful, but it was like, how long am I going to stay here? You know, I just want to feel this feeling because life felt, and you talk about these characteristics when people are, you know, in that awakened state, it's just, you, you have so much more freedom in life, you know, you're not bogged down mm. by so much and there's a trust. You know, that was one of the things that you reminded me in the book was just like this complete trust of the way that things are playing out in our life. That's right. Yeah. There's a feeling that everything is okay. You know, there's no need to worry. Everything is in a state of harmony and the problems only begin when we fall out of that harmony, which is very easy to do. But when you're in this awakened frame of mind, this awakened state, then, you know, there, there are not really any problems. There are, there are situations that you might need to deal with. 
but they don't really disturb the, the feeling of harmony and trust that you have. You know, there is a kind of a, st a stable, ongoing sense that life is meaningful, that you have a purpose, that the world is harmonious, even though if it seems discordant on the surface, there's a kind of underlying harmony in things. And yeah, you know, life gets so much easier in this day. People don't tend to get stressed out. They, they, they feel this sort of, they feel a tremendous sense of appreciation, you know, a, a tremendous sense of gratitude for the fact of being alive itself, for everything around them, the beauty of nature, the people in their lives. So that, I think that that's probably an important part of it. When you have a, a strong feeling of gratitude, then it kind of overrides uh, the normal kind of anxieties and difficulties in life. You know, they become insignificant, you know, and they're just, they just become situations that need to be dealt with rather than problems. Yeah, absolutely. Insignificant. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly mm -hmm. how I felt or have felt many times, you know, coming out of these awakening experiences. I'm kind of riding the high for a couple of weeks and then, you know, life happens, like you said, you know, but you also mentioned the ego, right? So when you yourself become bogged down and you're able to step back and identify with the ego, you talk about ego dissolution in your book as well. So, and I know that you're a big fan of Eckhart Tolle or Tolle. I don't remember. I, how, what's the real pronunciation of the last name? Everybody said that gets confused with that. So, um, well, I I call him Tolle, but I think that's because I, I know he's German and that's a German pronunciation. But I think a lot of people call him Toll, you know, because yeah. that's more of an American pronunciation. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of his work as well, you know, yeah. and, and the ego. So can you describe a little bit about what you mean by ego dissolution? Ego dissolution is the main reason why people undergo transformation in the midst of intense suffering, because when people go through long periods of trauma or psychological turmoil, it slowly breaks down the ego. So I've, I've got a lot of examples of people who underwent transformation after many years of addiction, many years of depression, you know, people who, who, who had been in prison for a long time. So that, that kind of, that kind of suffering. It breaks down your, your psychological attachments. You know, you slowly lose everything, which gives you a sense of identity. You know, I think Eckhart talks about in his books, how we derive a sense of identity from our possessions, from our ambitions or hopes for the future, from the story of our past life and our achievements in the past and all of these things, they, they, they're all the building blocks of our ego, you know, the building blocks of our identity. You know, you know that you're an important person because you've done this in the past and you know, you've got all of these possessions around you that tell you you're an important person, you're a successful person. But when you go through a long period of addiction or depression or imprisonment, then all of these things are taken away from you. And that breaks down the ego. All of the building blocks are taken away. So at a certain point, the ego will just collapse in the same way that a building collapses when you take away the bricks. So that, that's ego dissolution. And usually... It's a, a very painful experience, but for some people, it's actually a liberating experience and it's a, a transformational experience because it's not just a breakdown. It's also a shift up to a new identity. You know, when the ego dissolves for some people that there seems to be a kind of latent spiritually awakened self, which is just naturally, you know, there inside them and it's just waiting for the opportunity to emerge. So the ego dissolves and then this new self emerges like a, like a phoenix from the ashes of the old ego. Yeah. So yeah, so ego, dis ego dissolution is a, can be a very transformational experience. 
Now, is this the place to talk about what it means to be a shifter, right? So when the ego dissolves and you're kind of letting go of this identity and you're shifting into, you know, this other state of being, maybe we can kind of talk about that next and how, and how the word extraordinary is very closely related to your definition of what a shifter is. Yeah, yeah, shifter is, I, I use the term because they shift into a different, different identity. They shift into a higher state of consciousness, which becomes their permanent state. And it is a very dramatic identity shift. That's why it's so extraordinary because it, you know, people often say that it's as if they're a different person living in the same body. You know, there were some cases that, you know, one woman I talked to who had an awakening after 29 years of alcoholism, when she just totally lost everything and attempted suicide, she looked at herself in the mirror and thought, who is it? And said to herself, who is that person? I don't recognize that person. I don't associate myself with that person because she'd become a different person. Another person told me how she went back to her hometown about six months after her awakening to see, you know, to see her family. And then people would say to her, hi, hi, Kimberly, how are you? And she, she thought, who are they talking to? I don't, I don't recognize these people. How, how, how do I associate with these people? Because again, she felt as though she was a different, a different person. So, you know, so, some superficial personality traits remain, you know, like sort of, uh, introversion maybe, or pe people also have, also have some memories of their previous lives. But fundamentally, they are different people with a different perspective on life. A lot of people change their jobs because they feel that they're different people. Usually they shift into a more altruistic profession. You know, they want to do something, you know, they, they feel a very strong in, in, impulse to contribute to, to the world or to help other people. So a lot of, in a lot of cases, they train as therapists or counselors or start to work for charities. And sometimes, unfortunately, relationships break down because their partners, for their partners, it's as if they're together with a different person. You know, they sometimes say, you, you know, you're not the person that I got married to. Who, who are you? You know, so, that, so relationships, unfortunately, do break down. But um, yeah, that just shows you how dramatic the shift is. It is almost as if they've been taken over by an entirely different identity. Okay, so here's a concept that might be a little far out there, but I wanted to get your opinion on this because let me just check my, yeah, the person who was addicted no longer exists. So this was a part of the addiction part that I was uh, reading, but like a lot of the words that you're using and what you describe that people are feeling are as if they are a different person. Like this example that you just gave, it was almost like she didn't even recognize the people and even recognize her name, you know, when her name is being called. So I've talked to a couple of other people on this podcast about consciousness shifting and was wondering, do you have any thoughts or beliefs around the fact that possibly that person's consciousness could have left the body and a new consciousness has decided to come in? Now, we might talk about it as, like you say, like they shift into a higher level of consciousness. But, you know, in, in your book, you have really great stories. It's almost like spontaneous healing, right? Like the addiction release is, is the term mm. that you use. You know, it's like this person can be an addict for so many years and all of a sudden they wake up, they bottom out, they decide that's it. And they really don't even feel like they are who they were. And like mm. that relationships can dissolve. You're not even the person that I married. So when we're talking about consciousness, and I feel like we have such a really limited understanding, really, of all that we are and all that is, 
what are your thoughts about some of the theories of walk-ins or like maybe that consciousness lived those 23 years in alcoholism, mm. learned the lesson, there was an awakening and the body opened up to allow another consciousness of a higher frequency possibly to come in and begin to live the life. Mm. That's very interesting. I have considered that. Because it's almost as if it's a kind of reincarnation, you know, in, 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 in reincarnation, a soul or consciousness occupies, inhabits a body and become, takes over the, the identity of that body. So it is almost as if, you know, perhaps, you know, some kind of soul entity enters the body and becomes that person's identity. That's possible. But I think the other way of looking at it, and this is the approach I take in the book, is that the, the ego identity, which dies, which dissolves in these experiences is a kind of false identity, which has been created by conditioning, you know, by, by peer pressure and social pressure and, and, and by the ego mind's activity, by the constant thinking of the ego mind and the accumulation of attachments and concepts. So it's as if this false identity has been created and taken us over, but it's not a true identity. So another way of looking at it is to say that this false ego identity, it crumbles away due to the stress and turmoil. And then our real deep essential identity is free to manifest itself. <laughs> it was always there, but it was covered up by this false identity. So yeah, I guess that those are both ways of looking at it. And you know, there's, there's no real answer. So I'm open to both possibilities really. Right. Yeah. No, so am I. I've just had the opportunity to hear some really wild stories, you know, about yeah, yeah. consciousness and the ability for our consciousness to also make decisions to leave and to have another consciousness come in to inhabit the body. Like I heard a really interesting story about a baby that was born with some sort of, of illness and that soul had come in to the baby's body really just to kind of get its feet wet and to experience a little bit of life. But during this whole medical process, it was like that soul had left and then another soul had come in and the baby survived. So there was this whole, you know, concept of consciousness really being able to come in and out per se. Yeah. It seems a bit like that, a bit like that in some of the stories in the book, because, you know, there were stories of people who'd suffered from physical conditions for many years and those conditions would just disappear after <laughs> transformation. And addiction release, that was a very strange phenomenon where people who've been addicted for, for many years, severely addicted to drugs or alcohol, would suddenly be let go of their addiction. And it was almost as if, you know, the, the reason why they were free of their addiction wasn't because they'd shaken it off. It was because the addiction had simply died because the person who, car who carried the addiction was no longer there. So it wasn't the addiction which had died. It was actually the person who carried the addiction. So the new self, which had taken over the body, you know, it, it didn't carry any addiction. It was just a newborn self without any addiction. And it didn't carry the same illnesses. And it was, it was free of all the trauma that people had been through. Because that was another thing, because, you know, I, I talked to people who'd been through severe trauma. You know, for example, the, the woman I spoke about earlier, who was uh, an alcoholic for 29, year, 29 years, she went through all kinds of really severe abusive relationships and all kinds of violent encounters. She said she was raped multiple times and somebody tried to murder her. But she said that she was free of all the, the trauma of all of this, those experiences. So again, it's as if the person who carried those trauma or, or the mind which carried those traumas 
had just disappeared and was no longer in existence. Yeah, I'd like to talk next about the transformation through the turmoil of death. Let me get my notes here. Waking up to life through death. That's one of the, the key components there of, of this chapter. So, you know, the theme is transformation through the turmoil. And when you get to the chapters of death, just because that's what Path 11 focuses a lot on, you know, death, afterlife, life between lives, mm. that deaths, I truly believe, can be our best teacher. And it was so funny, yeah. just the other day, I said almost verbatim what you had written in your book, where a client of mine had lost her mom. And she really was going through this transformation through turmoil experience. And I said, well, you know, how are you doing with everything? And she said, I feel like I'm more alive. You know, I feel like I got to get stuff done, you know, and she was reflecting on how busy of a woman her mom was and how much her mom lived a really full life. And she actually felt really empowered and inspired and really awakened, like in that moment to say, mm. I got to get going with my life, you know? So yeah. you really talk about this concept of how death can really wake us up to life and help us to live life even more fully. So I'd love for you to talk some more about mm. that. Yeah, that's one of the main themes of the book, I think. And I've always been very aware of death. I've always, I've always had a very keen sense of my own mortality. And it's been one of the main motivating things in my life, you know, because I'm always aware that life is temporary. It's very fragile. It depends on my breathing, my heart, and a million other biological processes in my body, all of which are very intricate and fragile. And, you know, because it's temporary and fragile, life is incredibly precious. It's a, you know, it's a gift. Even if you believe in some form of afterlife, which I do, you know, it still doesn't take away the fact that life in this form, in this world, in this mode is temporary and fragile and precious. So a lot of transformational experiences occur simply through being made aware of the reality of death. So there was a woman, for example, who was diagnosed with cancer and almost straight away after she was told that she only had a few months left to live, everything changed. Her attitude to life changed. She said it was the first time she'd been really aware of death, the reality of death. And she was really aware of the temporary nature of life and Suddenly everything become, became beautiful around her. Suddenly she, she could sense this energy radiating from the trees and this kind of harmony filling the whole of the sky. And, you know, that, that became a, an ongoing experience for her. But it, yeah, I think almost everybody who, has, who undergoes transformation through turmoil gains a sense that there is some kind of laughter afterlife. You know, they lose their fear of death. And that's partly because they sense that there is something more, you know, they, they sort of move beyond simple physical reality. They realize that the material world that we sense in our normal state of consciousness is not the only reality. It's only a kind of partial reality. And there is, there is more to life than the material world. And, that, and that's even more pronounced when people have near death experiences, when they, you know, experience the the phenomenon of leaving their bodies and traveling through darkness towards a light and sometimes meet people meet deceased relatives and so on. So in almost every near-death experience, people return in a transformed state of being, you know, and they, they remain transformed for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I've spoken to many of those people and they really appear to be at the being level of holding love. Like constantly, mm. you know, it's yeah. 
so many ND years that I've talked to, it's just like, that is the message time and time again, that it is all about love to be more loving, to spread more love, to talk about love. Um, yeah. And, you know, that kindness. So absolutely, you're right. Yeah, and also the awareness that love is not something which human beings, you know, feel for one another. It's also a kind of a tangible reality. It's kind of like the essential reality of the universe. It's almost a, an energy or force which pervades the universe. Exactly. So, yeah, once you've had that experience, then, you know, you're, you're a completely different person for the rest of your life. Right. Yeah. And it, exactly like you said, too, you know, it's, it's part, I think, one of the keys in this talk is really about the ego, you know, that, that death of the ego. Now, I also have heard too, and I think even in, in uh, the new earth that Eckhart had wrote, is that we're not, the ego isn't a bad thing per se, right? Can you kind of mm. talk about how like we can use the ego in kind of a positive way? There's something about having the awareness of it, number one, that changes your life. I remember I picked up that book in my 20s. Thank God I didn't know I had so much ego and I did and it really changed my life. So just even the awareness of what the ego is, but that there are also good parts to it. And if we can kind of shift the relationship a little bit and kind of come into communion, with the healthier aspects of the ego, that that's not such a bad yeah. thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a, but I remember seeing a Buddhist drawing that traces the, the, the different stages of spiritual development. And it's all based on an elephant. So like the, in the, in the beginning, there's a man with a, a wild elephant, which is leaving, leading him all over the place from one thing to another, but slowly through the different stages of development, development, he learns to control the ele the elephant. He gets it to walk in a straight line. He sort of leads it in the right direction. And in the end, he's actually sitting on top of the elephant riding it. And that's a good metaphor for the ego because, you know, the ego is, I agree that it's not necessarily in itself a bad thing, but it's a really bad thing when it controls us, when it's kind of untamed and wild and when our thoughts lead us all over the place. And when we, when we can't differentiate between our true identity and our thoughts, you know, then we're, we're completely immersed in our thoughts and, our only real identity is derived from our thoughts. That's when it's, it's bad. But, but once you begin to meditate or once you gain a certain degree of spiritual insight, you begin to stand back from your ego and you realize, oh, well, it's just a, you know, it's just a kind of a superficial thought created self. And you begin to separate yourself from your thoughts. You just sort of begin to watch your thoughts rather than being carried away by them. And eventually, you know, you learn to tame your ego and to control your ego and you become the, the master of your ego, you know, going back to the, the Buddhist drawing. So that's the ideal state to be in when, when you, we, your ego becomes, becomes a kind of tool that you can just pick up and then put down again, because you, you need, sometimes you do need to think, you know, you need to plan the future. You need to organize your life. Sometimes you need to, you know, think about, you know, what is the right thing to do in this moment you may need to use your ego for your job you know so and, and the ego you know it has an organizational role it's at the center of your consciousness and it kind of it gives you a sense of orientation so that that's a good thing but it, so if you are in control of your ego if it's only a tiny fragment a tiny part of your whole identity then that's fine i think another another metaphor is it's bad when the ego is a dictator, like in an, in an authoritarian government, that's when it's bad. It controls your whole life and controls your whole identity. 
But if the ego is just a member of the cabinet in your in a democratic government, you know, it's just one part of the whole democratic government, which doesn't have any more control than any than any other, then it just does its administrative organizational role. And that's fine, you know, so that's the best state to be in. Yeah, there was an example that you gave about a monk being the way that monks live in comparison to people who live in prison. And I actually, I love the teachings of Buddhism. And I was watching a YouTube from a Buddhist monk give almost the same exact example uh, that you had given in your book. And I think it speaks to what you just said about really having awareness of the ego. Otherwise, it's going to feel as if you're in your own prison. And so there was a story of the monk in the the prison warden and the monk was going in to talk to the prisoners and the, the monk started talking to the warden and the warden started asking him questions like, oh, so what do you guys eat there, you know, at the monastery? It's like, oh, well, we have one bowl of rice in the morning. And the warden was like, only one bowl of rice. He's like, well, geez, our prisoners, we get three meals here, you know? <laughs> and then they said, well, where do you guys sleep? And he's like, oh, well, we just sleep on a straw mat. And the warden was like, are you kidding me? You don't have a bed? You sleep on the floor? Yes, we sleep on the floor. And then the warden asked, he's like, well, these guys have beds. They have pillows at least. And he said, well, what about TV? Do you guys watch TV there? He's like, no, we just meditate, meditate for the whole day. So all of these examples, right? kept going on. The warden said, my God, it sounds like you guys live in a prison. And the monk turned to the warden and he said, you, would you like to know the difference between us monks and your prisoners? And the word said, yeah. And he said, we choose to be here. You know, and yeah, you gave that example in your book where the monks know that they can leave at any time, even yeah. though the living conditions can feel almost subpar to what is in our own prison system, mm. per se, but they're not prisoners. And there is kind of this choice. And so the message right. of that whole YouTube was no matter where you are, always choose to be there. You know, mm. always wanting to be there. So I just, I, I loved reading that. It reminded me of that story when I was uh, reading about yeah. Shibuji, yeah. the monks in the prison. Yeah, there are a lot of parallels between monks and prisoners when they both live in cells, they sleep in cells, don't they? But beyond that, you know, it is, well, the prison is paradoxically quite a fertile environment for spiritual development. You know, I, I had two chapters in the book about prisoners because I found so many examples of prisoners who'd been through spiritual awakening. And I think that's partly because when you're in prison, it's such a, a turbulent environment. You know, there's no peace outside you. And it's, it's quite a, a very bleak environment. So you, you can, you kind of forced into yourself. That's the only place where you can find peace is inside yourself. So a lot of prisoners begin to explore their own being, possibly for the first time in their lives. And they find a new identity inside themselves that they've never really been aware of, a new kind of spiritual identity. And they begin to experience unusual states of consciousness. And at the, at the same time, prison is also an environment where you, you have to let go of your psychological attachments because you're, you, you're nothing when you're in prison. You know, all your identity is taken away from you. So again, paradoxically, that can be a liberating experience. You know, when your identity is taken away, you can find a new spiritual identity. So I think that's why, you know, I, mean, I think monks are the same, you know, I tried to do something similar. They, they also let go of attachments and, you know, spend a lot of time exploring their inner space. So, yeah, it's, it's quite similar in many ways. Yeah. 
Now, I know that you have interviewed so many people, you know, it's, you you reference a lot of your research studies and things of that sort. I was wondering, out of all of the people, all of the stories, what's the one? What is the one that to this day either still just has you thinking about it or was even extra extraordinary, but really <laughs> is the story that maybe even changed you intrinsically in some way after hearing it. Hmm. Yeah, there, there are a few very inspiring stories which always touch me when I think about them. And often when I was speaking to people, I'd be moved to tears, you know, because the stories were so moving. I think one of them is a story that I've touched on already. It's, it's the, a woman called Eve from Scotland who was an alcoholic for 29 years. And as I said before, she just lost everything in the end and was so broken down and so hopeless that she decided to commit suicide. And she actually did attempt suicide. She, she knew that at a certain time of the day, a coach would come along the road from Glasgow to Edinburgh. So she waited by the side, by the side of the road and jumped out in front of the coach. But the driver luckily swerved, so she survived. And a policeman came and she thought she was going to be arrested. But the policeman was actually a very kind guy and said, you know, how did you end up in this situation? Can I, can I do something for you? Can I take you somewhere? And she said, well, maybe just take me to my parents. You know, I haven't seen them for years, but take me then. Maybe they'll let me in. So the policeman took her to her parents' house. And a mo her mother gave her a glass of wine because she was an alcoholic. She assumed she had to give her some wine. But she couldn't drink it. She picked it up and just put it down again, picked it up, put it down again. She had no idea why. And then a doctor arrived and gave her some sedatives and to deal with the withdrawal symptoms. And when she regained consciousness, that was when, you know, she didn't recognize herself in the mirror. She had no idea who she was. She felt like a different person. And she realized that the urge to drink had just gone. She didn't want to drink anymore. And she felt somehow really different. Everything around her looked different. You know, the colors looked brighter. Everything looked clearer and she felt this sense of well-being inside her, this sense of kind of deep trust and, you know, joy in being alive, which she'd never had before. And she, she didn't really understand what, what happened. She, she knew she felt great. She felt different, but she didn't, she didn't know anything about spirituality. Um, so until she went to some AA meetings and she was talking about how she felt and somebody said, oh, you've had a spiritual awakening because they know about that stuff in, in AA. Right. And she thought, wow, have I? And then somebody said to her, you know, this is just a pink cloud. It's not going to last for a, a, a long time. It'll fade away soon. And she thought, no, no, it's not going to fade away. She just knew intuitively that something fundamentally had changed. And it didn't fade away. It became a normal state. So it's now 10 years since, she's, since she stopped drinking. The urge to drink has never returned. And she still has that sense of, you know, feeling connected to everything. You know, before she felt like she was completely separate and isolated inside herself. Now she feels this sense of connection to nature and to other people. And she just feels this sense of trust and optimism and, you know, that nothing can, you know, dent, you know, even when life becomes difficult or stressful, it doesn't change this feeling of connection and, and trust that she feels. So that was very inspiring. Yeah. One of the things that I'd like to highlight in your book, Extraordinary Awakenings, are these intense stories you know, and interviews of people that you share, you know, so that's just another thing that the reader will really benefit from of all of the people that you've 
have spoken to and these stories that you've captured and that you've put in these books and you reference also the leap. I can't wait to read that one, but you know, but there's more stories, you know, it's like stories upon stories. It's almost as if you are their storyteller, you know, it's like you find them and tell their stories. It's really beautiful. So I just want to thank you so much for taking the time today to be a guest on our podcast. Everyone, again, this is Stephen Taylor. And can you let people know where they can find your information? Because you also have courses, you know, you do teachings, you have many more books that if people really loved what they heard here today, you know, they should go out and buy and fill their library up with your books. But where can, where can people find out a little bit more about you and how to work with you? The best place is my website, which is stephenmtaylor.com. Stephen with a V, M for Mark, stephenmtaylor.com. So there is some information there about my my other books and my online courses and the teaching I do at uh, universities and, and so forth. Great. Do you have anything coming up for 2022 at all? I've got, I'm really looking forward to my first in-person workshop for a couple of years so because of the pandemic. In April, I'm doing a, a weekend retreat in Scotland which will be great. Beautiful. And I think in March, I'm doing my first talk, in-person talk for a long time too in London. So I'm looking forward to that. All right. Well, we have quite a few listeners from London and Scotland. So maybe they will actually come and uh, take your course. So thank you again. This was extraordinary, Stephen. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Pleasure. Great to meet you. The book again, Extraordinary Awakenings, Stephen Taylor was our guest today. And I hope that for any of you who maybe are currently going through a transformation or maybe you are still in the turmoil, this is a great book. And just being able to really read these stories and hear other stories of how people really were able to use their turmoil for that transformation. I think it's also a book, a great gift to give to people who you know that really might need some of this inspiration and to really see and to have hope that transformation can happen. So thank you all so much for listening today. Take care, everyone. And until next time, bye, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the Path 11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Path 11 TV. Visit path11tv.com to start a seven-day free trial and start streaming over 100 hours of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's path11tv.com. And be sure to use coupon code PODCAST30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path 11 TV today. Bye for now.